All right, welcome to the conversation. We're gonna talk about Afghanistan, the withdrawal in the future. We brought on Michael Starr Hopkins to do that. He's a Democratic strategist, most recently worked as national press secretary for John Delaney's presidential campaign. And he's the senior vice president of Firehouse Strategies. Michael, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. So, Michael, let's talk about the exit first, then I wanna talk about what we're gonna do with Afghanistan going forward. Uh, so, of course, no one thinks that it was a, a wonderful success, that's obvious. Um, but who do you think is responsible? Because to me, it looked like it was the military who both screwed up Afghanistan this entire time, lied to us about uh, how well it was going, and told us the military, the Afghan military was ready, and then they crumbled. And our Pentagon didn't have a single plan in place. So do you agree that it's mainly the Pentagon who bungled this and who are basically miserable failures in Afghanistan? I think there's enough blame to go around between the policy failures, the legislative failures, and the military failures here. But I think at the end of the day, what we've got to look at is in the first eight months of the Biden presidency, he managed to do what no president did before, which is end a 20 year war. and. You know, the loss of life and the wasted funds that we've seen in Afghanistan certainly can't be brought back. But the fact that we're finally ending this war, a war that started when I was a sophomore in high school, that that's a huge thing. Yeah, and so look, does Biden share some of the responsibility? Of course, he's in charge of the entire government, including the Pentagon, including the intelligence agencies. And obviously he should ask for a better plan because the plan they presented to him, if they presented a plan at all, was miserable. So, but Michael, I just get frustrated that when I, whenever I either watch or read any media, they never talk about the 20 years that the military has bungled us and honestly lied to us. I mean, didn't they say that the Afghan military was gonna be in great shape and that they had done a great job of nation building and they were ready and they were the bay, we had the best weapons, which now the Taliban has, and they were ready and equipped. Is there ever gonna be any accountability for massive failures in our military? Yeah, I think just like we had the 9-11 commission, I think there's gonna have to be some kind of congressional act to figure out what happened. Because let's admit there were failures across the board and our failure to be able to actually anticipate what was gonna happen is something that we're gonna have to study so that it never happens again. Because at some point there will be a mission in another country where we're gonna need to help their government. And what we've seen in terms of the Afghan military laying down arms to the Taliban, what we've seen with the president of Afghanistan fleeing the country in the middle of the day and no one knowing. I think those are all things that need to be studied and need to really be analyzed. And we need to figure out how we can make sure that never happens again. Yeah, I mean, I read a story about how they trained the Afghan military, the US military did, to with air support in mind. But once we leave, obviously there's no air support. They didn't think that through, that's it's stunning to me how bad they are at their jobs. And there's a bigger problem here. If you think about Afghanistan in terms of its long history, it's not and never has been a unified country. It's been, you know, a couple major cities and then tribal regions that are mountainous with people who 
you know, often have never interacted with anyone outside of their tribe. And so the idea that we were just gonna be able to prop up a military who felt a unified sense of purpose, I think that was really one of the failures we're gonna look at in the long run and need to figure out how we can make sure that doesn't happen again. You know, ironically, Biden was right about that too, also in regards to Iraq. He said Iraq was never a real country. There's a Sunni, the Shia, and the Kurd part, and that it should have been split into three. He's right. That things that are irrational drive me crazy, and unfortunately, the target rich environment. We drew those lines. We, the world, drew those lines after World War One. The Allies got together in in France. We're like, I don't know. Let's draw a line there. Let's draw a line there. And we're still trying to keep those countries together when they got no business together. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing that all across the Middle East and Africa, which is kind of the problem. These imperialist lines were drawn, and now you know they were intentionally neighboring factions put together in the same country so they could never unite. And you know, history plays out like this. Yeah. So, Michael, in terms of what to do in the future, um, my answer is absolutely nothing. Get out, never go back. Don't do drone strikes. Just leave, um, and let ISIS K and Taliban fight each other. Tell me why that doesn't make sense. You know, I think we do have to have some type of presence in Afghanistan because it is, I call it a failed state, but it's never actually been a state. So you can't have it fail. But we need to be able to have intelligence to know whether or not Al Qaeda is using Afghanistan again as a base. And yes, ISIS K and the Taliban are enemies and are gonna fight each other, but you got Iran on the border wanting to do proxy wars. We have to be able to know what's going on. I think one of the big mistakes we made after you know the Soviet collapse in Afghanistan was not having people on the ground in terms of intelligence and a small footprint. And I think we have to make sure we never do that again. Mm, no, if we're talking about troops, I'm a hard pass on that one. Um, so we don't need anybody on the ground. All it does is agitate people. And when we meddled in Afghanistan in the first place and created the Mujahideen, that worked out so well for us. Uh, so, but on the other hand, the CIA sucks, and so I would. Um, so I want to uh, propose this. Look. The CIA did all those coups and they did it on behalf of American corporations and that was miserable and and I didn't want them doing any of that stuff. But at least they were really good at this skullduggery in the past, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Unfortunately, they were good at it because it was terrible things to do, right? But these days, they seem like a bunch of useless bureaucrats that hide under their desks. So, okay, should the CIA be in Afghanistan to see if the Al Qaeda is reforming? Sure. Well, people will say, well, that's gonna be at great danger to their lives. Yeah, you didn't sign up for the post office, you signed up for the CIA. What am I missing? Well, I mean, yeah, I think the CIA does need to be on the ground in Afghanistan. And I think the CIA has a complicated history, especially talking about coups in places like Chile and you know across Latin America. But they do some of the most important work that there is in terms of intelligence, working with our allies, working on the ground, going into places and really kind of keeping us safe and doing the dirty work. So I think, you know, it, we gotta be careful how we go about I don't phrasing. Yeah. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, they even tried a couple of coups recently in Latin America. They botched those, thank God. Uh, they're, I think they're totally incompetent at this point. So that we just did a drone strike. Oh, well, oh yeah, we killed ISIS, did we? We, uh, I know we killed nine family members, including at least six kids. Uh, so yeah, what was the great intelligence there? 
I mean, think about that though. The car that we hit was filled with explosives. The people who got killed were killed by a second blast because the car was filled by explosives. Had the car made it to its destination, we could be looking at another 170 people killed, you know, more troops killed. Yes, there was collateral damage, and there's it's always a tragedy when there's collateral damage. But the damage came from the bombs from terrorists, not from U.S. drone strikes. So it's very hard to to uh, to be fair to. Uh, Figure out when to hit that truck, okay? Yeah. But it's I do not dismiss it as collateral damage. If if uh, ISIS or the Taliban had killed a family of nine in America, uh, including six or seven kids, and said whatever, man, it's collateral damage. Uh, you guys were out to get us, which is true, by the way. We invaded them. We were out to get them. So we killed your kids. So what? Um, we meant well. Okay. We meant well, right? Would we accept it? No, we bombed them into oblivion. So, but and that's then, a false equivalency. Like, I don't think so. We, so you have a choice. If on one side it's nine Afghanis, Afghanis are going to die, but on the other side it's 170 Afghanistan individuals are going to die, as well as Americans that are waiting to get no, in that airport. A, now that's a I'll false take, choice. I'll take that any day. No, Michael, that's a false choice. I mean, there, there, so, there are only. In no, that situation, no, there no, no, no. There's two choices. problems with your analogy. Number one, um, your only choices aren't hitting them right next to the family or letting them proceed. So that's why I started with the CIA sucks. So if they were better at their job, and I know that it's hard, but they would find a place where you're not going to kill six kids, right? I'm not saying you don't ever hit it, and I'm not saying you don't ever do anything about that truck, but I am saying. Yeah, no, they're not good at intelligence. And we kill, we bomb weddings all the time. We kill civilians all the time. We kill kids all the time. And every time we go, whoops, whatever, it's collateral, collateral damage. Well, that's why, by the way, I said we shouldn't be there in the first place. We shouldn't have been there in the first place for 20 years. We shouldn't be there in the future because we're not good at this. Every time we kill civilians, they go, oops, whatever, it's collateral damage. And secondly, you know, they say the 169 dead, the reference you made to the bombing that ISIS K did at the airport. Well, now the BBC is reporting we actually killed those people. So our service members were killed by ISIS and the bomb. And then both American and Turkish soldiers apparently panicked and fired in the crowd and killed tons and tons of civilians. Do you see why I say we shouldn't ever be there? Because all we ever do is cause more trouble. I mean, I guess I just disagree with the premise, though. In a war zone, there are absolutely going to be casualties. But the idea that we should have never been in Afghanistan, they were giving not aid for and comfort years. to Al Qaeda. Not for I, 20 years. I, which is what I was going to say. We should not have been in Afghanistan after we got Al Qaeda out of Afghanistan. Nation building is what we have not been good at, and we should stop trying to do it. Yeah. And by the way, uh, Maybe next time Saudi Arabia, they actually did 9-11. So, but oh no, they give us oil, Oh, okay, they're allies, they support Israel. Oh. Okay, none of it is based on rationality, none of it. It's based on warmongering and defense contractors, etc. That's my opinion, but it was an interesting conversation. Michael Star Hopkins, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure, yes. thank you. All right, back on the conversation. Andy Hirschfeld joins us. He's an investigative reporter, and he did a piece for TYT Investigates, and it was about Steny Hoyer and Wall Street evictions, and of course, house leadership overall. Andy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
No problem. So um, let's break down uh, this uh, eviction moratorium issue. Uh, so who was stopping the evictions in the first place? And then what happened? And then we'll break down why it happened. Well, so it was really the CDC. The CDC was the one, the, 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 the group that was kind of standing in the way, that was making sure that this was not happening. And it was up to states to really enforce that. And the problem that we saw really across the board is that courts were interpreting this differently. So some states were kind of actively defying it. They were saying they're not gonna follow what the CDC says. Other states were doing things like moving forward with evictions up to the point of actually kicking someone out of their homes. In Mississippi, for example, right now, they have a one day kind of notice situation. So it really kind of varies from place to place. So they got all these this money that they allocated. It hasn't gotten to the people that it needs to get to because of the states. And the CDC maintains a moratorium so you can't kick them out, although some do anyway. And then the moratorium runs out, Cori Bush obviously does her protest. And then Biden is forced to say, "Oh, golly gee, we have no legal authority to do this courts. Make sure you do something about it. And then turns around and the courts do say no, Congress has to pass it. And and now the Democrats don't look like they're really going to pass anything in the House, which then leads to the question of why? So what did you find out about Steny Hoyer, who's the number two Democrat in the House? That might question his motives a little bit. He's taking money from a lot of different parties within the election cycle. He took a lot of money from a lot of different parties that have a vested interest in the eviction and making sure the eviction moratorium expires. Whether it's people who own, who, who, are institutional investors buying up real estate within the rental market, whether it's the companies that are involved with building new homes in neighborhoods that will now have the ability to bar these very people that have been kicked out of their homes from getting a new place to live. So <laughs> for the uninitiated, this is all perfectly legal in American politics, right? Taking money from real estate interests and then doing whatever they want and evicting their tenants. Well, yes, I mean, there are these PACs, like the Carlisle Group has their own PAC that they will then funnel and donate to politicians that they believe have their best interest at heart. For example, in the latest report, Steny Hoyer. Goldman Sachs, Vanguard, all of these other groups, Carlisle, their various PACs donated to Steny Hoyer for in part for that reason. So, yeah. So I just want to jump in there for a second. You you asked Steny Hoyer's office for a comment, and if they had a good reason to take the money from the Vanguards and the Goldman Sachs, and in your report you explained that he. Steny Hoyer has been taking $5,000 from Goldman Sachs every year since 2007. 
well, they'd have a perfect opportunity to tell you, oh, no, 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 that, that's they were doing it for charity and it had nothing to do with the real estate interest. So was it for charity? Did they answer you? No, they didn't really respond. Huh, interesting. I wonder if uh, Goldman the, Sachs is giving the money to Steny Hoyer all those years to make money off of him because they think he's corrupt and will do whatever they tell him to do. Is that a possibility? Well, uh, that is a that is absolutely a possibility. And if they wanted to clear the record, they could have responded uh, to our inquiries uh, for comment. They could have made it clear uh, what their position is and why, in fact, they were taking that money. But they didn't. Maybe they had a defense. Maybe they had a good defense. Uh, but they didn't put it out there on the table. So. Um- Marcus Millichap gave a million dollars, the real estate company, gave a million dollars to the House Majority Pack in June. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is absurd. I mean, between your reporting on the money that Steny Hoyer is taking from clearly from uh, real estate interest uh, related companies, right? And these guys, let alone, by the way, t- millions of uh, dollars have come in through all these different. Um, Companies at different times, but the one in June especially, it it removes any doubt as to what's going on. So, Andy, I'm going to ask you a question. I know that you can't answer, but do the Democrats ever give a reason they didn't ask? The Hoyer's office didn't respond to you. Um, You know, Pelosi's office has not responded uh, when she's asked. Does Democratic leadership ever say? Why they take the money and and why we're supposed to believe them that it does, those millions of dollars don't influence their decisions? Well, I don't really think there is a good answer to that. I guess you could say the beauty of a company like Goldman Sachs is that they have their hands in so many different areas, so they could say, oh, you know, they may not be great in this space, but they're okay in this space, or you know, they're not good in this space, but they're okay in this space. Uh, but again, this is why uh, politicians should respond uh, to reporter uh, reporter inquiries for these things. Uh, they can answer those questions. Yeah, and you know, you've worked at a lot of different places: Fortune, ABC News, Aussie Observer, CNBC, etc. You've done pieces for them, uh, and um, and I'm curious about the rest of the media. Um, I, I don't know that <laughs> this is a fair question to you, but. Do they do they find it perfectly normal this kind of corruption like that's oh Steny Hoyer takes money from real estate companies, well oh, and then he votes with them well of course like do they think that everybody in America knows the corruption or they think the corruption is not a big deal? Uh, well I guess I'm not in a position to speak for other publications and other publishers and other outlets uh, for their editorial decisions. Uh, but there's just, I mean, these companies are so huge that that there has to be, uh, at some level, some kind of vested interest. I wouldn't say that's coming from an editorial decision, uh, but that could be something uh, that come from could come yeah. from like upper upper level management. See, I, that was kind of an unfair question, Andy. Of course, he can't speak to for all those folks, and he answered it anyway. You see, it wasn't that hard. Steny um, <laughs> Hoyer, even if he thought it was your questions were unfair, could have answered it and could have given a fair answer like you did. Anyways, um, so uh, you mentioned someone uh, challenging Hoyer at the end of the article. Who is that, and then how do you think that plays out? It, whether this will affect that race? Uh, yeah. So she, he, uh, Steny Hoyer has a progressive challenger, Michaela Wiggs. Uh, 
and she is uh, essentially she ran for uh, his seat in the last election. Uh, she did not uh, end up winning that seat. But as soon as this election ended, she decided, hey, uh, I'm going to jump back into the race again. Uh, and she managed to um, really pick up some momentum here. She has people starting to volunteer for this campaign that started like immediately after this past election cycle. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing when people are excited about an election when the election cycle is really starting to ramp up and all kinds of people are throwing their hats into the ring, uh, and it's another when it's immediately after uh, this this you know take shape. And we've seen elections like this uh, across the country. Uh, you know, we, we famously uh, the election that you know prompted AOC's career, for example. Uh, there are many. Um, you know, examples like that and, and across the country that we can really look at. Yeah, so by the way, guys, we're gonna put the link to Andy's piece down below. If you're watching on later on YouTube or Facebook, please read it. It's got great details on all the money that Hoyer took from all these different companies that are related. Now, I wanna ask you, Andy, is it basically too late here? Have, you know, even if they fix it now afterwards, have people already been evicted or no? In some places, yes. Uh, as I mentioned in Mississippi, for example, they have a law where somebody could be locked out of their apartment in the same day. Uh, once a judge orders that. I live in New York City. In New York City, the protections for renters are, in the great scheme of things, uh, pretty good. It can take up to a year. Uh, of appeals and, and things like that to kick someone out. So there's a broad spectrum of what can happen to people. And as we've seen in some of these more Republican led states, uh, that they move a little faster with these processes. processes. And, and that's kind of what we're looking at. Uh, the other thing, and I just wanna point out uh, that was telling uh, from Steny Hoyer, uh, is in, his, in a statement uh, that he put out publicly, he equated renters and landlords and the welfare of those two groups of people. And that was particularly interesting to me. Yeah, um, yeah Andy, real quick, I got the sense from that quote, I'm glad you brought that up. That he was saying, "Oh yeah, for the renters, if you're my voter, but landlords, I'm going to be pretty brazen and tell you, keep that money flowing because I'm actually for you. He seemed to want to have well, his cake and eat it too. Well, well, there's two aspects here. There is obviously an issue and a problem facing small mom and pop landlords. Uh, but at the end of the day, there are things that they can do to cover some of those losses. Uh, they have other assets that they can, uh, you know, wage against uh, to to help their situation. Uh, higher interest rates, um, things of that nature. If they're paying for things like water or power. Uh, for example, they can work with the companies to have a payment plan to, to deal with back payments. When it comes to renters, they don't have those kinds of protections. They're relying on you know, the, good, the goodness of their landlord, which in a lot of cases is just not, uh, not a thing. So the problems facing landlords uh, you know, is, is kind of a, these mom and pop landlords is a challenge. But there is a cushion for them 
when it comes to renters, a lot of people are renting because they don't have the income or the credit to be able to buy themselves. So for renters, this is a, can I keep a roof over my head or not? For landlords, it's a income stream. Right. And I think it's it's kind of telling that he equated the two as an equal situation. Yeah, it's definitely telling. No, he was signaling the donors, I got you, keep sending the money. And oh, voters, sure, I'm for the renters, wink. And that's how politics works. Andy Hirschfeld, thank you, brother. Great piece in TYT Investigates, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.